Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. If you blink, there is a new set of dominating forces that are predicted to be the ones that will win the ANC elective conference. Those of us who've been in the game long enough know that it's way too early, even though in one sense it's not, to really know how things will pan out. And in my experience, having attended a number of ANC elective conferences, this year in particular, there are more factions and more fault lines across the different provinces within some of the provinces. And it's really difficult to get a grip on what exactly is going on. And you'd be a fool to place money on predicting the outcome of the top six and the leadership structure. In fact, even the discussion we're about to have, by the time it lands on your ears, there may be new headlines different from what it is that has brought me and my two guests together. Be that as it may, the impetus for this discussion is twofold. It's a check-in currently of where the ANC battle for leadership is at. And then secondly, in the moment of that race this week, former President Jacob Zuma's announcement, as if he's being virtuous, I'd be happy to be ANC chairperson, the old timer says, if that's what the branches want. We've heard that one before from ambitious politicians who pretend to be apparently disinterested but do not want to disrespect the desires of the branches. Helping me to unpack this is Susan Boyson, well-known political analyst, and also Mike Saluma, my colleague within Arena Holdings at the Sunday Times, where he deputizes to the editor. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Mike, thanks so much for being part of the conversation. And Susan, wonderful to be chatting to you again. Thank you, Yusebe. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us, uh, Yusebe. Yeah, we've got the difficult task of trying to make sense in the first instance of this weird press statement. Mike, I'm going to start with you. I mean, it's almost as if either JZ or those who are, whoever they are, from the office of the former president, because that's how the media statement was signed off, maybe they read the Sunday Times and they were annoyed at some of the commentariat writing about who it is behind the scenes that former President Jacob Zuma is backing as a horse for this year's elective conference. And then he comes out and he says a couple of things. Number one, he says that ageism is bad. He can still be a leader himself. A generational mix is better than one that only um, preferences people who are younger. And then he says, number two, I'd back Nkosa Zanet Lamini Zuma. It raises a question the BBC asked me yesterday that I'll ask you now, wearing my hat as a moderator, what are we to make of it all? Uh, I, I, I think that um, there are two things going on. 
um, we, we must not forget the the context in which the the, the world of uh, it or the world in which uh, Jacob Zuma lives these days. Um, that he's got this, a, a kind of sort of Democles hanging over his head from in terms of his legal uh, problems, his numerous legal problems. And I think that one consideration is that uh, he wants to continue to make himself relevant and prominent um, and to drum up support uh, for his assumed position of being a victim you know of the of the of the justice system or of his of his enemies so that's the one thing that he needs to stay politically relevant in order uh, be for yeah. him to stay out of jail basically that 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 is the the, the one and 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 for, for the, at another level uh, his ability to stay out of jail uh, also depends on the political clout he may have in the in the in the in the in the in the ANC itself, you know, so that if he's got enough clout, enough support, then it might be more difficult, you know, for him to to to, to be prosecuted. I mean, we saw last yeah. year what happened, you know, when when he was sent to jail. So he, he he would like to keep the status quo, basically, where he's the victim and he's got a lot of sympathy in the hope that uh, the prosecution might might fizzle out at some point. Susan. In social sciences and the humanities in general, we teach that sometimes explanations that are the simplest are the best instead of looking for complicated ones. Mike's one is obvious, but that doesn't mean it's not untrue. Do you share his speculative motives that he is assigning to JZ? Yes, indeed. I think Mike has summarized that part of the likely motivations from former President Jacob Zuma very well, that compulsion if not necessity by his framework of reference to stay out of jail mm. and to remain the victim that goes a long way. I think, and Mike in a way alluded to that, I think Zuma is really also delusional about his own importance <laughs> because, you know, looking at July 2021 and the unrest there after he was incarcerated for just a brief period, um, he might have the impression that he really has a lot of power. He might also think that the fact that there are so many so-called pilgrimages to Nganda, that people kind of seek wiser, older statesperson kind of counsel, really places him in the center of things. He does not understand that that has some symbolic mobilizational value. It has some statement of, of opposition to Ramaphosa and the incumbent people. And that is a limited kind of usefulness and importance that he would have in that respect. So I think he's absolutely been misjudging his own importance, as we saw then this week, tangibly in in form of branches and provincial delegations from KwaZulu-Natal in particular, not taking seriously that he expressed the wish, if yeah. not the, uh, implore them, that he, sh he should be nominated and his former spouse, former um, acolyte NDZ, Nikosazana Dlaminizuma, should then also be nominated. Mm -hmm. So he's clearly overstated his own importance and influence. I will, I'm inclined to agree with Susan on that particular point, but I wonder whether we can stay with it and just for the sake of hygiene, interrogate our apparent agreement here, Mike. Can we neatly infer from the express wishes of the provincial leadership in KZN for who they are backing and the divergence with the preferences 
of former President Jacob Zuma that he is therefore a politically spent force and has delusions of political grandeur. Because that seems to be the case on the face of it, given what KZN has expressed. And yet at the same time, you find every other Joe managing to see it important enough to do a quote-unquote courtesy visit to the man of Nkandla. And so what is fact and what is fiction? Are some people also delusional about the importance of having him on their side? Or is it difficult to call beyond just knowing that he has less power than he thinks, but how much power he has is up for grabs or not? I, I think, Yusabias, that uh, the, the, he, he may not have as much political power as, uh, as he imagines uh, that, that he has. But I think that it is, uh, if you look at what is happening in KZN, um, it, it is highly likely that uh, the people in KZN, uh, you know, there's always this, uh, this, this issue that, that at the last conference they made a mistake by, by not putting, putting forward a particular, you know, a single candidate as KZN and they lost out as a result in terms of representation yes. of the top six. So I think that what, what is probably happening is that the people in KZN will try and marshal as many, as much support in KZN um, to be able, you know, when they get to conference, you know, to pull all of those resources uh, so that they can come out with, a, be able to influence the emergence of a candidate from, from, from KZN. But it is not Jacob Zuma's call as to what, you know, who eventually becomes, you know, the person that the province supports. He can be there as one of the influencers, if you like, in inverted commas, in KZN. But mm-hmm. he's not like the overwhelming factor in terms of what's going to happen in the province. Does that mean, Susan, we, we should talk about the guy less and that, in a sense, we are reinscribing into political discourse the factual inaccuracy that he is still a major force when it comes to making sense of the internal machinations of the ANC? Um, yes, I would certainly say that he has got a limited understanding of the dynamics, current dynamics in the ANC. It's a new type of ANC that is emerging. I don't subscribe to the view that the ANC is dying. It's not a pretty ANC that is emerging. It's one in which there is hardly a candidate without blemishes, hardly a candidate without a clear record in party or in government. And that is the new type of ANC. Obviously, it will have limited or restrained electoral appeal out there. And that is a new ANC and this new ANC also multifactional. It's not just the, the old RET, radical economic transformation people versus Ramposa people. There are so many variations for it. In a way, it is mm-hmm. more a more honest battle this time around because they go straight forward for power. There's no RET or very little RET pretends this time around. And as we saw in the case of the KwaZulu-Natal ANC and their attempted slate, so far just attempted, it is really a brutal power game to try to construct a template that or a type of slate that will have will appeal across the provinces. And they are really going for the pre for the four big provinces, KwaZulu-Natal, Gauteng, 
um, Eastern Cape and Limpopo, one can look at the proposals they make for this, these positions. So they hope to build, if they control these provinces and these provinces, unlike, of course, unlike we usually see at conferences, but either summer round they go and speak with one voice, then this, this slate and this provincial initiatives could come to dominate the outcomes in December 2022, except, mm. of course, we know there are many a slips between a slip between cup and lip, and it is early days. I think it's a long term, uh, at least another three months to go in this chess game, and I would say yeah. we're only about one third in. I think that's absolutely right. We hardly started the middle game. This is the beginning of the end of the opening gambits uh, across the different provinces. I wonder, Mike, despite, in my opinion at any rate, President Cyril Ramaphosa having turned out to be a disappointment after being backed by many as the constitutionalists that will be helping to undo the state capture years and having many backing even amongst the commentariat. And now everyone is disappointed, including Peter Bruce. And um, despite that, Despite that, is he safe, not on account of excellence, but on account of even the scoundrels know that the ANC would be foolish to choose someone even less impressive than the incumbent president? Or not? Uh, you know, so I, I personally, you know, in the previous uh, elections, you know, uh, even with surveys in between, uh, as you know, that uh, the 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 that that Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, had a higher ranking or rating among um, in the in the population yeah. than the, the the party itself. My view is that uh, in the wake of, in particular, Palapala, I think all other things, you know, I, th- I think the load shedding thing makes mm. people very ha- very angry mm. and and all of that and people want to change etc because they are affected directly um but i think that if in the in place against the palapala thing i think that uh, uh, the the palapala thing uh, a scandal uh, would have caused by now serious damage to the standing of Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, both inside the party, because if you look at things like the step-aside rule and all of that, and the rebuilding of the party, uh, bringing in more morality in leadership, etc., uh, his performance, you know, against that in the party uh, actually li- mm. leaves much to be desired, you know. And I think that he would have been seriously hurt by Palapala in the party, but also he he would have been seriously hurt by Palapala in the way that the public now perceives him. You know, Mike, I think that's right. But of course, at the end of the day, the race is amongst the candidates who are in the race, notwithstanding those knocks that his reputation has taken. Yeah. And I would love to see robust polling. And I think it would bear out exactly what you say. I have the yeah, same yeah. intuition. But you are competing relatively against the other contenders. In that context, is he still safe? The, the the point I was trying to get at is that the, he would have been safe if he was considered to be like a more viable face of the party. You know, if he were to be elected president and he, he, his, it's his face, face on the on the on the ballot paper, he would have been safe if the the, the calculation yeah. was that. But we're now at a point where you know things have gotten so bad for him that there are people who believe that Zuelim Kizer actually might be a better proposition. You know, even if you. at this stage <laughs> it's it's KZN that is thinking that. But if you look at what is happening in Limpopo, there may be people you know in the horse trading, there may be people in Limpopo, even in Gauteng you know, as because of the Paul Mashatil effector, where people at conference decide, 
uh, maybe we should actually, you know, reconfigure the, the, the alliances mm. and mm. and let's go with uh, in in exchange for Limpopo getting Stan Machabache as chairperson, the, the, the chairpersonship that Jacob Zuma seems to be coveting. In, in exchange for Stan Machabache getting that, then uh, they might say, okay, we'll go with Paul, and uh, for KZN to support us, we'll go with what they want, which is Zuelim Kizan. Mm. I think Mike's view is very interesting, Susan, and it, in a sense dovetails a premise that you had articulated earlier, that we are in a race where no one is unblemished. And when no one is unblemished, you're not going to get very far by pointing out the clouds hanging over the head of your interlocutors because they are clouds over your own. In that context, is the incumbent less secure than would have been the case when he was still a superstar? Yes, indeed. Um, the time of even as recent as January this year, when these provinces like Limpopo started pronouncing um, and very much contrary to current ANC rules, but started pronouncing that Cyril Ramaphosa is a man. Then it, in many ways, it seemed like a clear-cut trajectory, except we knew these yeah. provinces, these regions, these branches still had to sing their little last songs. And it, it really, the game has really changed. Palapala, in many ways, was, it a, was a serious equalizer between Sol Ramposa and potential blemish-tainted opponents because he became seriously blemish and, and less than that perfect original candidate, apart from the governance failures coming out of COVID times where silence was a good governance option. And ESCOM has definitely mm-hmm. heard him. Palapala is a classic. The timing of that was so strategically calculated and it worked. Even if there are no charges yet, Zuel Mukhizi hasn't got any charges either. If one listens to Andy Motibe and what kind of evidence they have against Zuel Mukhizi, it sounds very, it sounds very bad. But if I listen to the mm. kind of deal making and recommendations and manipulation of scores of the, on the different tenders, it sounds like standard government practice to me, honestly. There are so many of those tenders where the scores are manipulated, where the minister or other senior official or politicians' views count at the end of the day. And it seems as if Rosweli um, Mikize, bad as it is on digital vibes, could still come emerge as a relatively unscathed person. And is a very, I know exactly what I'm saying there, and it's a very serious statement, but that is the state of the ANC yeah. in government. And so it is, the, we, the, the mix has yeah. really been altered since the beginning of the year. And so Ramposa is not nearly as clear cut an option as he was, if at all. That's very helpful, Susan. I think you're right. That initial premature announcement made it seem as if possibly there would be a clear-cut trajectory to the end of the year, and that's not turned out to be the case. We are a good 60% into our allotted time for this recording, and it's interesting to me what's happened in it. The three of us have observed current affairs and ANC politics in particular for a long time, um, individually and collectively. And here we are, Mike, yet again, as if we are standing in front of some board at the JSE looking at the numbers. We're not discussing what the candidates stand for, who's got ideas for energy insecurity, who's got ideas for 
managing to get the economy to grow 5% sustainably for a number of years so that we can deal unemployment, inequality and poverty death blows, deal with criminality in the country, finishing off the business of cross-racial tensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing happened earlier this year with the policy conference. You and I and Peter and many of our colleagues across the audio journalism sector were conducting discussions about the policy conference as a proxy for electioneering come the end of the year. And here we are discussing the preferences of provinces in terms of horse trading the names. What does that tell us about the state of either us as commentators or hopefully nothing bad about us, the state of the ANC? These discussions do not seem to be a performance and an exhibition of leadership excellence and a contestation of ideas. Yeah, the, 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 the challenge uh, that, that, uh, that uh, the ANC is sitting with right now uh, is that it seems to be easier to shout and sing and, and be loud in meetings and, 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 and shout slogans and get elected rather than to apply your mind. And, and because you, you're talking about the ideas, you're talking about what to do with all yeah. the many problems in the country. That takes a lot of hard work. And I, I, I think that the, the, what has happened to the ANC is that it has had, uh, you know, it's an organization that, that is in a state of uh, intellectual atrophy. You know that 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 for, with, with every passing year, with every passing policy conference, every passing NEC, the level of intellectual or political engagement has has just about disappeared. Every meeting, many of these meetings are focused more on step aside. They are focused on who is going to be nominated for what, who is being persecuted, all of those things. Yeah, so, so the ANC is being consumed by, by peripheral things in, in the greater scheme of things for the country. These are peripheral things, you know, uh, and, and internal party uh, issues uh, which do not give space or which, which do not encourage the emergence of robust intellectual conversation about where the country is supposed to be going. You know, the NC likes to call themselves the leader of society. There is nothing leaderly or leadership-like in what has been going on in the NC for the last more than 10 years. You know, So there is very little uh, intellectual or political uh, enterprise or engagement in the ANC right now. So it's not a surprise that elections of leadership have been reduced to personalities. Uh, they've been reduced to tribe. They've been reduced to region. They, they've been reduced to uh, uh, whether you're coming from a, a Teguini or you're coming from Sunduzi or wherever. You know. So that, that really is the totality of the process of electing leadership Absolutely. in the ANC now. Mm. So I, I'm not surprised that none of these candidates, as you're saying, Sebius, uh, have said anything about the biggest threat facing this country, which is the energy crisis. Absolutely. And none of them yeah. have, have even you know, articulated themselves on it. I suspect they have no idea what they would do, even if they were to be elected president. That bothers me as a citizen. It bothers me as an analyst because I have a stake in my country and I don't know what to do with what I think Mike has cogently summarized, Susan. It's now 11 years since I sat next to you when we launched your book, The African National <laughs> Congress and the Regeneration of Political Power. I think we were at the old jail um, at Constitution Hill yeah, way Indeed. back. 
And it's interesting because your magisterial tome and, and the subsequent one is excellent at dealing with what we have versus what we wish we had. And that is something that my friend Karima always used to try and get me to do instead of doing normative thinking, but to do real politics. In the realm of real politics, the ANC is good as at, to quote your title, regenerating political power. But to bring it back to what Mike says, what we need now is not just an incumbent political party that is capable of regenerating itself at the level of party agency, but we need a darn party that has got leaders with ideas for how to get the bureaucracy to be fit for purpose. Do any of the names that have come up in this podcast discussion between us, do any of them excite you as a citizen? I almost prefer to have a silence, <laughs> a moment of silence at this point, you yes. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could answer in the affirmative, but I'm, names are spinning through my head and there just is none that comes with an exciting, who comes with an exciting ideas package, an mm. alternative something that is not contrived and offered as a proxy battle in, in those terms one almost misses, even if it was phony yeah. uh, in, in many respects and definitely a proxy, one almost misses those RET heydays <laughs> five, even five years ago, where at least there was a pretense of fighting around better ideas and it did have a small impact, small on the ANC nowadays, it's as we saw at the policy conference a few months ago now, it is rhetoric now, radical, everything is called radical, even if it is reactionary, mm. it's still radical now just for the ANC to prove that it is radical and to try to eclipse that mobilizational space that used to be available to some opposition opposition figures. With what the- accounts for that wearing your professorial hat academically, what, how might we make sense of that? Is that just the slow acculturation of anti-intellectualism in the ANC? I mean, after all, as I sometimes remind younger journalists who, who, who don't have our institutional memory having been around for donkey's years, even at Mangahung, the now president wanting a second term, was parachuted in at the last minute on mm-hmm. JZ's slate not having uttered a single word, Mike, why branches or voting delegates should vote for him. He just came back from the business sector and hardly behaved like a Democrat narrating ideas himself when he first came back into the fold. So is that what has happened, Susan, the acculturation of anti-intellectualism, or how do you account for it? Um, Yes, I think that has been such a strong phenomenon in ANC. There's a type of intellectual bankruptcy. There is a a mechanistic, procedural, almost a new managerialist, and that comes from Talbot Bege, thank you very much, approach to tick boxes, proving by the appointment of another commission, by another set of advisors, by another crisis or coordinating committee, et cetera, et cetera, that there is motion, that action, that things are happening, unfolding without new ideas coming, old ideas being regurgitated endlessly. So I really see not just an intellectual bankruptcy in the ANC, but just uh, an inability to be honest with the electorate and say, we are in a total morass, a quagmire, 
we do not know how to get out of it. We haven't got alternatives. The ANC will never concede that because that is just counter to them regenerating that bit of power they have left. And now in a current conjuncture, it's even more imperative for them to do that because it's as, and we see it in this race. It is as if it's a desperate scramble in the last opportunity there is to actually still maintain majority power. And uh, there is no time in this playbook, ANC playbook, just no time for deep thought and ideology. Mike, your contribution, do you agree with what Susan is saying? It would be imprudent to be honest, but the consequence of dishonesty is the kind of intellectual bankruptcy we are witnessing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a problem of intellectual bankruptcy, but also the diminishing of the ANC's ability to give leadership you know, in, in society, yeah. you know, I, I look back, say, around 1994, before 1994, um, and I look at, for example, uh, Mandashi going to the to the Kosati conference where he's uh, prevented from speaking. And then he says, mm. he speaks on behalf of the ANC. He says, this thing has got nothing to do with the alliance. It's got nothing to do with the ANC. It's a shop floor issue, actually. The, these workers must just go and talk to their employers. And I'm thinking, I'm looking back and I'm thinking wow. the ANC in its heyday would have uh, pulled out all the stops to make sure that, that, yes. that problems like these, where, for example, the efficacy and efficiency of the state, uh, in, because in this case, we really are talking about public sector unions, that the efficiency of the state uh, cannot be diminished, you know, or undermined by an endless disputes around with the ANC of old probably would have intervened, even if it's offline, talking to all sides, trying to bring everyone together so that there is a resolution. And, you know, to see Mantashe, they're saying, well, watching his hands of the thing, you know, from the party that is the leader of society saying, well, this, this problem in the public service has got nothing to do with us, actually. It's a private matter. You know, it's not an alliance thing. It's not an ANC thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's an indication of how diminished the ANC's influence in society. In fact, it has surrendered its own influence uh, in society in, in providing leadership. I think analytically, this depressing note is an accurate note to end on, but I'm going to ask one last question. Uh, you're not compelled to answer it um, optimistically because it may also be a depressing answer. The generational takeover, quote unquote, to bring it back to JZ's statement, that he is scared of and he prefers a generational mix, which is just code for please, please, please don't forget about old people, um, is an interesting question. I often have journos who are observing our country from afar asking me about the next generation. And I don't have a clear view. I want to know what you guys think as fellow commentators on, on these issues. Because for me, the first problem with the ANC on younger leadership, and I'll start with you, Mike, and Susan, you can end, is that it's not even clear what young means. I mean, Guedo was making fun of Jacob Zuma with reporters and saying, have you heard of an 81-year-old wanting to compete for ANC chairperson? And of course, I quickly Googled his age and he should be you know, a pensioner by now himself. So it's kind of weird what the ANC's idea is of young. But in addition to that, even the most young cabinet minister, if I take someone like Ronald Lamola, um, I would be hard-pressed as a political analyst to give you a detailed three to five minute speech what the guy's all about. So it's not obvious to me that the next generation is inherently where the answer to the leadership crisis lies. Mike, how do you see it? 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the generational uh, question becomes relevant, uh, especially when we're talking about the, in, the infusion of young leadership into the, into the ANC. That becomes relevant only to the extent that that young leadership would come with new ideas, new strategies, new yeah. ways of thinking. Look back at the, the generation, the, the youth generation of the ANC Youth League uh, in, 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 in 1944, you know, Anton Limbete and them. Uh, Robert Sobuko and them, Nelson Mandela and them. Mm. They were thinking completely differently to the previous, mm. but they were moving the ANC forward. They were radicalizing it, but moving it forward, right? You look at mm. the young generation of 1976, they revitalized the armed struggle and all of that, you know, when, when a lot of the leadership yeah, had left the country a long time ago, etc. Their infusion into the ANC radicalized it and infused a, a sense Absolutely. of urgency, yeah. you know, in the way the ANC was doing things. Fast forward and then to again today, in the mid to late 80s yeah. the, with the mass democratic yes, movement. Yes, but now, fast forward to now, the people who came out of the, the recent youth leagues, let's put it that way, I think <laughs> all of them have bought into uh, the culture of looting, of me advancing self-interest, even if they're young. You know, a lot of the people who are saying we are young, we want to lead. They don't mean we want to lead to make South Africa better. They are saying we want to lead at the back of their minds so they can have access to the largesse, you know. And and if you, if you look yeah. at the culture, the culture of conspicuous consumption by the, many of these leaders, you know, in the ANC and outside, young leaders, you know, who are like you know, uh, 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 worshipping the, the god of money, as it were, you know, as opposed to the god of politics and of making life better That's right. for South Africans. So I, I think that the issue of, of the, the, the generational mix, generational change, it, it's all being driven by self-interest more than wanting to do good for the country. Mike, I think you speak clinical truth. Susan, do you agree with that or are you more optimistic? I'm afraid I cannot be optimistic on this front. We really do not see exciting new faces, new ideas, new narratives coming from the slightly younger in in the new emerging. <laughs> slightly generation. younger, like that. Sorry, you see, yes, sorry, sorry. I mean, any surprising thing about the Youth League and Jacob Zuma is that he has not become a member of the Youth League. The ANC is so flexible <laughs> about who they take as young. Um, but this is really, this whole situation of lack of emergence of exciting younger new talent is really the result of or an indication of the state of the ANC. Uh, there has been so much control over the, in recent years, ever since the time of the Youth League that later became the EFF. And there's so much suppression, control, attempting to keep the party together as one that really should 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 have been evolving much more naturally. But that uh, control and containment of internal dissent for fear of splitting the party and splitting the party to the point of it not retaining state power. And state power is really its redeeming um, feature at this stage. But that kind of control exercise over more than a decade now, very tight control, has really meant in many ways a different kind of death to the ANC. Susan Boyson, there are many excellent political scientists who don't speak cogently outside of academia. There are many who speak cogently in the public space who aren't great academics. You are both. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And also thank to you. my colleague, Mike Saluma, thank you so much for your energy, your keen observations, your editorial leadership. 
And for once, not having the burden of moderating a discussion, but speaking freely. Thanks for coming on the platform. It's been such fun, actually, not having to moderate. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much.